episode of All We Hear is Purple. I'm Andrew Berg. We're the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the internet, and we're the official podcast of the Cody Pickett fan club, but today we're going even further back than Cody Pickett in Husky history to 1991. We have no sports happening right now, except for sports that are old. So we went back in time. We watched the UW at Nebraska game, the second game of the 91 season, the national championship season. We're going to Hopefully, over time, relive several of the big games from that year, uh, starting early in the schedule, and we're going to talk about that, break it down as if we are just watching it for the first time. Gaby, how are you doing tonight? I mean, relative to the whole, you know, world being on fire, and I haven't left my house's general vicinity in like ten days. Uh, sh- sure, it's it's it, why not? It is. Period. Yeah. I will say I had uh, – this was probably the most fun I've had consuming uh, media in the last couple of weeks watching this game. I didn't really know what to expect. I'm kind of a sucker for old stuff. And I, I kind of felt like I was missing a chunk of knowledge of this part of history. I've, you know, I've read about the national title season and the Don James years in general. But when this happened, I was six years old in North Dakota – uh, I don't know if you had been born yet. If you had, you were probably nope. quite young. No? Um, I so, not. So, I, I mean, this is the first time I ever watched this game, and as I go through more of the season, it'll be the first time I watch pretty much any of the games. Maybe that makes me a bad Husky fan, but, I mean, why would a six-year-old in North Dakota be watching West Coast football games? Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm coming to it late, but I had a really good time watching it for a bunch of reasons. There we go. And right. I watched it. And the background while making risotto. <laughs> Apocalypse uh, risotto. My, I, I end up background watching a lot of things, but this, like, I, I kind of thought I was going to do that, and I found myself being like, oh, no, this is this is way more interesting than Words with Friends or Bejeweled or whatever. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm, I'm into this. I'm sticking with it. Uh, so just to give a little bit of background coming into the game, this was the second game of the year. UW came into the game 1-0, having beaten Stanford in the season opener. This was, like, the dregs of the terrible Stanford teams uh, that lasted for a very long time, basically between John Elway and John Harbaugh. Uh, Nebraska was 2-0. They'd played Utah State and Colorado State, and I think they scored 130 points in those two games. Uh, UW coming off a 10-2 season the year before, won the Rose Bowl, uh, finished number five in the country. They were led that year with a really good offense uh, with Greg Lewis, won the Doak Walker Award as the running back, about 1,300 rushing yards in the 12 games, not the 13, 14, 15 games teams played sometimes now. Uh, Mark Brunel was the starting quarterback on the team, but he tore a knee ligament in spring practice, which turned it over to Billy Joe Hobart. So that's what kind of sets the scene coming into the game. Uh, I, I, again, didn't know a lot of the history. I didn't realize the reason for the Brunel-Hobart timeshare was forced on them uh, and had to now have a better understanding of why uh, Brunel was not the full-time starter in the 91 season. I don't know if that was something that you had noticed before, but thank you, Keith Jackson, for explaining that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Let's let's Sorry, just jump into the game itself. Yeah. Uh, God, I love Keith Jackson so much. It's like I could I would like watch him give eulogies at a funeral, and I'd be like, God, we got to get some more people under the ground. I just love listening to Keith Jackson talk. He's <laughs> just the best. And the job I'm already okay. getting off topic. The job of a play-by-play commentator in 1991 was very different from what it is now because they don't have like the down and distance and time on the screen. There's no first down marker. You can't really see clearly who the players are. So he has to actually tell you what's happening. So, so much of what he's doing is just repeating what he's viewing rather than, uh, you know, trying to generate takes or throw it to nine different sponsors or whatever. And it's, it's probably an easier job in a way, but he did it really, really well. It was, it's so much more boring of a job though, I feel like. That's one thing I noticed when, while watching it, and this is kind of true of any old sports stuff, is listening to it. Not only is, were athletes in the past, where they, you can see how much worse of athletes they were than, uh, modern. Like, if you took a guy from 2020 and put him on that team, how much better he would be. Uh, and not only are offensive and defensive systems so much less dynamic, but also I was just, it struck me how much less dynamic the announcing was because and I don't know if that is their own knowledge or their assumption of the audience's knowledge so they feel like it has to be dumbed down or if it was just um that they had to spend so much time being like oh and it's third and two and blah 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 and this much time this is the score and and it was so weird though hearing announcing and play-by-play that was so kind of basic and simple yeah, I don't. I, I think that may be. I, I guess I'm probably old enough to remember that kind of being the prevailing style. Like I, I remember Keith Jackson really well, as you know, he was kind of getting into his dotage when I was starting to become a conscious sports fan. But I, I remember loving him as a kid, which means that his contemporaries and his peers were also uh, people that I followed and, and knew. Uh, as a, just watching sports, you know, like Jack Buck probably fits in that category, Pat Summerall. And, and I think that was kind of a stylistic thing to be more understated that you're, you're just saying what happens. Um, and I think yeah. if you talk to people kind of maybe starting a little bit older than me, there's a strong preference for that because it's how they view, you know, what they were raised to expect the game to be like. And somebody, I don't know who the, the archetype of the modern, like, much more information type play-by-play person would be maybe like a uh, like Joe Tessitore or Mike Breen or something where they're doing a lot more stuff. I I just see it as different ways of uh, you know park your cars in different garages, but different ways to get to the same uh, result. And I think they both have advantages, but I you know I the the folksy witticisms are what gets me with Keith. I, I made a couple of those yeah. of those covers as we go on. So yeah, good. so so good. No, but I think. I think my main my main thing is that like I never really imprinted on any there are, and even to this day there aren't really any football announcers that I well maybe there are no I don't really off the top of my head there's not any that I really could pick out it's like oh those are guys I like and so the people who I grew up with were all baseball uh, announcers and anal- and analysts and stuff between like Niehaus and Rick Riz and then uh, Andrew Mentank and Shannon Dreyer and uh, Shannon Dreyer and Jed Mueller uh, later on and Brad Adam and stuff and people who were just a like really emotional and engaging like Niehaus and uh, alternatively people who are really really alternatively and also at the same time uh, who are really really in depth and analytical like Angie and Shannon Dreyer and stuff so so then then when you're used to that whether it's that kind of stuff and whether it's baseball or football or whatever and then you go back to old timey stuff not old timey the 90s weren't old timey obviously but uh, 
it's such a weird kind of shock, reverse yeah, shock, yeah. whatever. I think the, the, the time, there were so many examples of this. My favorite one was when they were doing the out-of-town scoreboard, and several of the scores were coming up. Like, one of them was, I, I think the Purdue scored, and Keith Jackson's comment on it was, I watched a little of that game earlier. Next one comes up, Cal won a game. He's like, Cal, they're worth a watch. It's like, that was his whole analysis. <laughs> okay. So like, yeah, very simple. Uh, one of the yeah. other things that, that you touched on and kind of transitions us into the early part of the game was some of the very obvious skill deficiencies when you look at these some of these players compared to where we are now. And the, the thing that jumped out to me early in the game more than anything else was just how rudimentary the passing game was and how it's it, – it, it, so, okay, you're talking about an option team in Nebraska who probably doesn't want to pass as much as they had to pass in this game and a backup quarterback in uh, Billy Joe Hobart who was forced into action, as I mentioned earlier, as a redshirt sophomore, super erratic early in the game. He has the strangest-looking footwork. It looked like he was falling down every time he dropped back. Like, it really looked like he was about to – I had that exact same thought. Uh, and, and there were just About so many. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, I mean, I don't think it was just like something that they were teaching him. I think it was just a weird idiosyncrasy that they never like coached out of him. And, and yeah. kind of a combination of these things got the Huskies down 21 to nine uh, shortly after. Like Mid third quarter uh, was the, the third touchdown for Nebraska. They threw two interceptions in the first half and it, 55 penalty yards, bunch of holding calls. It seemed like, a lot of the passing game, they were racking up yards, but there were so many plays where it was like the receiver was open and Hobart's throw was just nowhere near the receiver. He's like way overthrown or underthrown. And then he would have this body language where he would look like he was really mad at the receiver for not catching the terrible throw that he made. It was a little bit frustrating for me to watch him early in the game. So uh, I don't know. It, 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 he kind of turned me around as the game went on, but that was a pretty frustrating start to the game, watching Hobart uh, just – throw the ball into the ground all over the place. Yeah, and it was definitely, uh, as somebody who wasn't alive for the 91 season, um, A, yeah, seeing that, uh, seeing his, seeing um, a pretty uh, mythical in Husky lore quarterback look like ass, like it was, it was such a weird thing to be like oh this is the guy we won a championship with like and I've noticed that also for one uh, I think a lot of quarterbacks prior to like I want to say 97 or 98 you look at their footwork and their release and their their uh, body mechanics throughout their throw and the drop back and it's you can tell how much how much wasted motion they have and you can totally I think see how um you can see how much more efficient and athletic and understanding of kinesiology, whether that's intellectually or just intuitively modern quarterbacks are just not even thinking about um, how much more mobile modern quarterbacks are uh, typically, but just their ability to be, have a really compact uh, uh, throwing motion that has so much more, um, leverage within, you know, lower body and upper body working together versus seeing guys. You can see why old school quarterbacks were just dudes that kind of stood there and then lobbed it. Um, and, and yeah, I totally had that same thought of, and, and about halfway through, right around halftime, like going almost, almost to halftime, I had a thought where I'm like, okay, I know this game is really mythical within and famous within Husky lore. 
am I misremembering it? Like, did we lose yeah. or whatever? Because yeah. it looked yeah. so bad. Well, after the uh, like, the offense was doing nothing, Bean O'Brien did an Aaron Fuller special and tried to field a punt inside his own five-yard line and fumbled it, muffed it, and immediately led to a Nebraska touchdown. And that put UW down 21-9 to in the middle of the third quarter. And I had the same thought that I was like, did I, like, click on the wrong game from the wrong season? Was yeah. this like a home-and-home and, home and I, I got the wrong one or something? Because it just seemed like, uh, yeah, it, the, the passing was so all over the, the map. And I, it, it started to click later in the game, and we'll get into that as we kind of talk about the comeback later. Uh, but I, a couple other things I wanted to just touch on uh, in the early part of the game when Nebraska was playing really well, uh, it was surprising to me how much they passed even when they were uh, when they were doing well offensively. It didn't seem like Nebraska's vaunted offensive line was as dominant as the you know the the, the myth making has made it out to be over the years. Uh, you know, it was also funny to me that there were three or four separate cutaways talking about Nebraska's weight room and how the players had gained an average of 24.3 pounds in the, since the last season. And it's because they have a 30,000 square foot weight room and they put their players on a high carbohydrate diet. And in retrospect, I, I you know, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school. And I say like, everybody knows that Nebraska was like the pioneer school of steroid use. And right around, you know, this era tracking back into the late eighties that like everybody on their team was juiced to the gills on horse steroids. Um, I don't yeah. know if that was the thing that made them good or if they would have been good without it, whatever, but like, I think that probably had a lot to do with them gaining 24 pounds in an off season, which is extremely <laughs> tough to do naturally. Uh, but yeah, it, it, imagine. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, what? No, I was just, I was, you keep going. Oh. I was just yeah, well, yeah, going they, to that I mean, stupid they, throw they, in there. Yeah, setting, setting that aside, the, the uh, obnoxious weight gain stories that sound very different in retrospect, I, I was surprised how infrequently Nebraska actually ran the option because I do remember the the Tommy Frazier, uh, Lawrence Phillips teams from a few few years later that were running the option most of the time. Like most of the play calls were triple option, and uh, there was very little that I, I don't know if I didn't count them, but I would guess it was fewer than fifteen option true option plays in this game. Uh, some of that was the Husky defense. Uh, Donald Jones was really good on sealing the edge. Dave Hoffman was all over the place making plays as a middle linebacker. But they were throwing the ball a lot. I thought it was, you know, they made a point to say Brian Bostick caught a long touchdown um, from McCann <laughs> for Nebraska. He's from Bellevue. Uh, went wild. I mean, not a ton of Bellevue players going to Nebraska these days. But that, that kind of stood out. I was, like, I, did, did anything no, no. <laughs> stand out to you about uh, uh, Nebraska's offense in the early part of the game, even though it was working? Um. Yeah, well, I mean, that was part of it. It was, A, it was just fun seeing, it was fun seeing an option offense that wasn't, uh, like the, the discussion around it by the commentators. It, it, nowadays, if you see an option offense, it's, there's, uh, I feel like the, the discourse around it is its effectiveness as a novelty or its effectiveness and, uh, with, with equal weight placed on its, um, being a novelty versus this just being like, oh, this is a good offense, like no, no asterisk, you know. Um, I suppose I was. Now that you're, you you mention it, I suppose yeah, I, I was a little bit um, surprised that there wasn't as many pure option plays. Um, but I also feel like 
Yeah, I I feel like for even for as much as they are they were known as an option team, I never I never think of or I I never think of them as a as a team that was so reliant on the um like exclusively in the way that like Navy or Georgia Tech until last year or whoever was I feel like now like modern option teams they only run the option and then they throw it like three times a game you know and I feel like from what I have seen of option teams prior to the 21st century there was a little bit more diversity in that offense and I don't know if that is necessarily accurate someone who actually lived through the 70s and 80s uh feel free to tell me if I am wrong but that is kind of from the footage I have seen and from you know what makes sense that seems to be kind of the the sense that I've got yeah I think that I'm looking now Tommy Frazier had two fully healthy years as the quarterback in 93 and 95 uh, they were phenomenal in both of those seasons, and he threw 162 and 163 passes in 11 games in each of those years. So that's, I don't know, 14 attempts per game yeah. or something like that, which is, I mean, it, it, you're right. That's probably higher than what uh, a, a team like Navy put put up last season, for example. Uh, their starting quarterback, yeah, only threw 86 Malcolm Perry passes last year. So you're right that they weren't quite as reliant on passing or running the ball every down, but... Uh, still quite a he- heavy uh, run attack. Um, one last thing before we kind of uh, move on from this uh, dire early part of the game, just on the Nebraska's defensive side, I thought uh, Mike Anderson, they had a middle linebacker. who's just the archetype of that uh, old school middle linebacker. I think back uh, just when I was younger watching Ohio State play, they had a Andy Katzenmoyer was his middle linebacker who racked up like, 250 tackles in a season or some obscene, obscene number like that. Uh, and I just couldn't – like, I figured he's going to be the greatest football player in the world for the next 20 years. Like, this is the next Dick Butkus or whatever, Mike Singletary. And he never really turned out to be much in the pros because he just wasn't fast enough. And I think Mike Anderson was kind of a uh, precursor to uh, Andy Katzenmoyer. It's just, it wasn't, wasn't the biggest or the fastest inside linebacker, but he had really good instincts, and he chased down runners sideline to sideline even though he wasn't super fast. Uh, and and guys like that at the college level are really fun to watch. We saw uh, just a yeah. year ago Ben Burkerman. It's, it's a fun type of player to watch. Yeah, exactly. And for what it's worth, I don't know if these were hits by him. I feel like he was involved in a couple. But there were a couple hits by uh, Nebraska. I think it was a couple safeties and, um, and linebackers that on, like, I think it was Mario Bailey and Bean O'Brien where it got hit, and as uh, just somebody watching it, you take a step back, and they're like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> like, yeah, that yeah. looks like it. And I'm sure, I, I'm almost positive Mike Anderson was the um, executioner on a couple of those. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, he was definitely lowering his giant shoulder pads into somebody's chin. Yeah. Uh, so his shoulder love- pads are each size of, like, a coffee maker on each yeah. clavicle. Yeah, it's like somebody put That's it. A, pair, a pair of shoulder pads on and then put another pair of shoulder pads on over it, and then yeah. possibly the third one. Uh, so yeah. let's take a break. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do our uh, quick ad break. We'll be back on the other side to talk happier things, uh, the dogs storming back late in the third quarter into the fourth, and how we went from thinking we were watching the wrong game to actually seeing a pretty decisive victory. So stick with us. We'll be right back. 
All right, welcome back. We are where we left off at 21-9 Nebraska in the middle of the third quarter, but this game ended in a drastically different way. And I think the, the place that it started to turn was uh, late in the third quarter, mid-third quarter, I guess it was just under eight minutes left. Uh, there was a long touchdown pass from Hobart to Mario Bailey, uh, where Bailey just burned his way past the defensive back that got negated due to a holding penalty. Uh, they had to make up the, the yardage. Hobart had a 15-yard scramble on third down to make it third and eight, or fourth and eight, rather. And Orlando McKay made a really nice uh, catch over the middle and ran it for the first down. They scored on a Beano Bryant run on the next play, cut it to 21-16, totally changed the momentum of the game. I, it, that drive really stuck in my mind as kind of the thing that broke Nebraska's back in a way, even though they were still ahead. Uh, did you see anything, like, what was it that changed? I know there's a lot of yardage in the first half, but the dogs weren't really scoring any points. And then from this point forward, they basically couldn't get out of the end, so they were scoring constantly. Yeah, I think, okay, this this juncture, I feel like, of that game felt to me kind of like a really perfect um, analogy for whatever the opposite of the 2019 Huskies were because the first two and a half quarters it looked and felt so much like um the like 2019 Washington as far as just like kind of sort of getting close by shooting themselves in the foot uh looking a lot worse than you feel like they should um and, and if you had just played me up until that point I would have felt like they were really similar even parts of the offense I felt like were pretty similar um but uh, except for Jacob Eason, it was not as erratic as Billy Joe Hobart. Even with his his uh, erratic tendencies, I think he completed like 60% of his passes instead of 40. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but then I feel like that where those two teams, I mean, beyond the fact that one of them won a national title and one of them went eight and five, um, I, I feel like really what seemed to be the difference between if you want to compare um, that this year, most recent year versus 1991, is that I feel like you wouldn't have had that fight of being able to get to the point where you can let the floodgates open mentally against for your opponent um, and be like and kind of have your uh, you know foot foot down on the gas pedal. And I feel like once they were able to kind of get everything in gear. I feel like they were able to hang in for just long enough where they were mentally engaged and ready to make things happen. And and once once they that touchdown that was the Bean O'Brien touchdown and all that, once they finally got to that point, it felt like, okay, now we're now we know how to do it, then there's nothing that can stop us. And yeah, yeah. I feel it's like getting, getting to over that the, the point, hump. yeah. Yeah, it was getting over the hump, and then once they got over the hump, it's like no problems. And I feel like if you want to compare them, 2019 felt like you look at their margins of loss, they, how close they were, and it felt like that's what the problem was, is they were so, so, so close each time, minus uh, Colorado, <laughs> to getting over that hump, but they just couldn't quite make it, and then, and then you know, whatever happened, happened. Um, and that to me felt like such a huge personality difference between times what we saw under Chris Peterson and this, that year of 91. 
Yeah, I and, and I would I think one thing that was different in this team than the 2019 team was the overall performance of the offensive line because uh, Lincoln Kennedy at Cunningham, rest of the line was really good. And, and Nebraska is known for their black shirts, their defensive line. Uh, I don't think this was would Nebraska fans would hold this up as one of their better defensive lines, but. Uh, they Hobart had time all day, and they didn't blitz him a lot, so there's there's something to that as well. But the offensive line just did a fantastic job of pass blocking, and so once he eventually did start to uh, hit some of his receivers, uh, the, the opportunities were there. Like the erratic throws early in the game, I think, like you were saying earlier, had more to do with his mechanics and his decision making. And once he kind of straightened some of those things out, the receivers were getting open. Both McKay and Bailey were doing were running great routes. They were getting themselves open constantly, and the, he had time all day. So once those things kind of opened up, and they're in the running game too. There were two hundred yard rushers in the game. So and I'd also say the defense played quite well. There were twenty one points surrendered on the day to a team that you know was one of the top offensive teams in the country the year before, and uh, two of those touchdowns were off of turnovers. One of them was on the two yard line. So really, the defense gave up either seven or 14 points, depending on how you look at it. And that's an outstanding performance on the road against a top 10 team with a good offense. So uh, yeah. Steve Edmond, you know, gets a lot of crap in retrospect because he didn't work out in the NFL, but he was all over the place, like bum rushing up the middle and, and just breaking down the pocket. Uh, Dana Hall was really good. You mentioned Dave Hoffman earlier. Hall uh, had some kind of rib injury early in the game. They showed him on the sideline putting on a flak jacket, which looked like, almost as big as those crazy shoulder pads and came back out, intercepted a pass, made a couple other nice uh, pass defensive pass deflections. He's a, he had a really good game, uh, really shut yeah. down what little there was of a pass attack. And I feel like his interception, I think interception was midway through the, I think maybe the beginning of the fourth quarter. And I feel like that, that felt to me like the moment where kind of any flame that had, of hope that Nebraska had was kind of all extinguished. Yeah. Uh, and Keith Jackson had a great line uh, when, I guess it was slightly after this, when Jay Barry broke an 81-yard touchdown to go up 36-21 uh, on a third and 12. They ran a draw. He cut back. Under six minutes to play, he scores this 81-yard touchdown to go up by 15 points. And Keith Jackson goes, that thumping sound was the door slamming. Was, <laughs> this guy yeah. he's so good. Uh that, that that was pretty much the end of the game. And then we got to see a cameo from a very young Napoleon Coffin at the end, which was also fun. Yeah, I, I was, it took me a while because I was like, I know, I know that Nit was on that team. And so it took me a while of being like, where, why aren't you, what, where are you? And just yeah, right. pure confusion. And then, and then finally, yeah, at the end, that was a fun little, Treat. I also think back to the defense just really quickly because I have one thought in there. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think especially the first half, the defense looked le- – it really didn't – really did not look as um, – or they looked more porous than what you're – what you expect out of out of how famous they were or they are. Um, and then – but then I think – I think about it, and I think really what it is is um, even – Don James, they showed a cutaway of him being interviewed the day before, talking about how hard the option is to de- defend. Um, but and you really saw that in action that even though they were they would contain Nebraska for much, you know, two out of three times or three out of four times, but then 
there were just these uh, uh, triple option runs that would get 10, 15, 20 yards. And really, if you know, you only have to have that once every three times. And I think it's such a perfect, it was such a perfect example of how um, perfect showing of how difficult that is to defend and how on paper it's impossible to defend to defend if you do it right um for 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 uh the triple option and so just seeing see, seeing a defense that would be so good except for when they that one time when they weren't you know every say 20 25% of plays was uh, it made it and I'm I'm obviously biased because I have a rugby background, but it made me miss the option in general as a thing that I want to come back. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's true. I, I think overall, you know, part of it is, it depends who you're playing against too. You know, when you look at the overall output of the defense and uh, having Nebraska is a good team and they, they were a dominant offense for 30 years under Tom Osborne and, Yes, they had some nice runs in the first half. The passing game was never really very effective. I think most of the completions were underneath very few, other than that one long touchdown to Bostic. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think and, – and, you know, we talked earlier about the broad strokes that the commentary was painted with, and one of the storylines was about how Washington's defense was really aggressive and uh, Nebraska's defense was much more conservative. And we definitely saw the aggressiveness. Like, there were linebackers in the backfield. There were eight guys in the box frequently – and I think some of that led to, yes, they were able to break a few runs here and there, but as they kind of wore down Nebraska as the game went on, it kind of tailed off. And in the end, they, the Huskies had exactly 200 more rushing yards than Nebraska did and 618 yards of total offense. It's almost surprising they only scored 36 points with 618 yards of offense. That's just a, a, like a number that almost never existed in that era of football. There was There were huddles after every snap. Like there weren't. 120 plays <laughs> game. There was like there's a slower game. Uh, and there were 618 yards of offense. It's crazy. Uh, so that that kind of gets us to the end of the game itself. But I thought it'd be kind of fun. We've we've been kind of sprinkling this in as we go, just taking it, talking about some of the things we noticed from the game. Uh, Nebraska, for what it's worth, ended the season nine two and one. They lost this game. They didn't lose again until the Orange Bowl when they played Miami. So it was still a very good team. I think they still ended the season ranked number 11. So, uh, you know, a very high-quality win. Um, and I, I, Tom Osborne, I, I found a quote from him post-game. He said, Washington's offense is good. Their defense is superlative. They compare with some of the very best, even with Miami in the Orange Bowl three years ago. There will probably be a lot of good teams that won't come as close as we did tonight. So comparing this Husky defense with the – uh, you know, those crazy Miami defenses. I think that was the game. It was like a 60-point win or something for uh, Miami in, what was that, 1988 uh, in the Orange Bowl when they won the national title. So that, that that's pretty high praise. I thought that was a pretty uh, cool comment for him to make after the game. Yeah. And yet still, I it, it, that's what's crazy to me, though, also, is you look at that and you look at how many really um, – legendary people were on that roster and how revered that defense was. And then you look at even just 25, 30 years. Oh my God, it's already been almost 30 years. Holy crap. Um, you know, but then you look at even just 20, 25 years later and I feel like 
just based on how 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 quickly sports science is has improved and how quickly um athletes uh dedication like year round dedication as young as like 12 13 14 is to being better i i you you look at like the 2016 Washington defense and i know on paper you know it's impossible to 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 it's impossible to compare those those two because there's just so many factors that um, that are so different if you're looking at football in 1991 versus 2016. But I feel like just looking at at the athletes that you have in modern day, even on a team that uh, that you know was not going to win a national title, even though they were in the playoffs. Like let's be real, they didn't have much of a shot. Uh, I, I can't help but feel like that would have been like 2016 UW defense, all like just all held constant, um, playing against the same teams as 1991. I can't help but feel like that would have been a better defense. Yeah, I think it was true in an absolute sense. I mean, there's seven on seven now. There's you know off-season skill camps and individual position coaches and things that just didn't exist. Strength training, dieting at an early age that goes beyond just injecting horse steroids. Yeah. So, like, in an absolute (laughs) sense, I think you're right that this is – that the 2016 defense is probably purely player-by-player better at what they were supposed to be doing. But I think when Mm -hmm. you compare them to the offenses they were playing against within their eras – and I'll hopefully get a better idea of this as continue to watch through the season, watch as many of the 91 games as possible, comparing the 91 defense to the 91 offenses against whom they were playing after having seen, the, for example, the 2016 defense playing against a bunch of other 2016 offenses and get a better idea for what that spread looks like. But those are both. I mean, the 2016 Husky defense was also phenomenal, so like clearly one of the best in school history. Yeah. Uh, probably one of the better ones in conference history if you're making like a top 20 or something. Uh, so I, I, I don't think, you know, saying that there's a debate between these in an absolute sense and even in a relative sense, I think is are, are still valid comments. Um, yeah. Another thing. And, and I totally agree with you. And I kind of threw this out there just as a, as a perspective on how, how much sports, especially college sports, has changed in the last 20, 25 years. Um, but. And that, that is what you just responded to with that is why I, A, I totally agree with it. And it's also one of the reasons why I find like who was the best of all time or who, which team or which player across eras were like the, were the greatest or blah, 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 or who would have won in a fight or whoever, why I find those discussions or debates, whatever you want to call them, totally mind numbingly just stupid and boring because it's such apples to oranges. Um, and the resources and and the systems and everything that you're looking at in you know if you're like comparing Hugh McElhenney to who gives a crap Miles Gaskin like <laughs> it's just, there's so so many different things and so whenever like people want to talk about MJ versus LeBron I'm like I don't care <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah. that's I, my statement. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think it goes back. If you're having those conversations, you have to do a lot of timelining. Like, you have to have taken the time to understand what they were going up against, like who they were playing against and what the realities were. Try to control for as many of those variables as you can because you're right. Like, 
just trying to do it in an absolute sense. If you say like, hey, well, look, uh, MJ only shot, you know, whatever it was, 32% on threes, and LeBron would have them there. It's like it's different, different sport, different, totally different game that they're playing in that regard. Um, I, I also wanted to mention some of the things I noticed about Tom Osborne. I thought it was really funny. Well, first of all, I, I remember him looking much older than that, I guess, because he went on to have a career in politics and did a lot of stuff after his coaching career. We've seen him more recently. But back in the early 90s when, you know, he's still younger, he looked something like a cross between a younger Clint Eastwood and Norm MacDonald, but wearing, you know, red pants and a red jacket. Uh, something to do with the, the, his blue eyes, that, but he would still squint all the time. Uh, I also thought it was funny that they kept coming back to the this – take that he's in decline because I think they'd lost three bowl games in a row and they couldn't win the big game anymore. Uh, and he said that uh, they're going to, you know, he's going to retire after the 1993 season. And after 1993, he won 26 straight games and was an undefeated national champion in 94 and 95 and didn't actually retire until after 97. So it's probably good that he didn't stick to his uh, commitment to retire after 1993. Uh, he would have been two national championships poorer. Uh, but I, I thought, you know, it's funny looking back because, you know, we talk about the slide of the Nebraska program and how nobody was happy with Frank Solich, even though he was winning like nine or ten games a year. And they, you know, weren't great for what they had. This goes back a lot farther than Frank Solich. This was people complaining about Tom Osborne, the same Tom Osborne who had already elevated them out of obscurity to being a national power and a national champion. While he was still the coach, they were complaining about the fact that he went like nine and three one year. So I thought that was yeah. pretty that that the hot takes and the stupid analysis, uh, while maybe not as widely heard in 1991, were still out there and they're still pretty strong. Yeah, and I think that's so so worth being cognizant of if you're a fan of anything, frankly, because I think we retroactively lionize coaches uh, or 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 GMs in, in professional sports as well. And be like, oh, this guy was this was so great, and how come insert you know whoever coach you have now, how come you're not that good? Um, and I feel like people have such selective memories on who who can who becomes a legend and how good that really is. Um, and so, and I feel like particularly that's true um, now in the 21st century as college football pro as their programs have had seen more of a resource imbalance um, between the South and Midwest and then the West Coast and other places uh, like the ACC um, and other places in the Big 12. Um, like, I think the perfect example is Jim Harbaugh uh, and yeah. his Ohio State problem and people being like, oh, you're not you're not Michigan fans or national media getting all up, up in his Ish, you're being annoyed with him for not winning against Ohio State or whatever. You can pick anything. You can pick UW and Chris Peterson. Oh, why can't you win the big game? You can pick anyone really except for Dabo Swinney, I guess. Um, and the reality is that even the best coaches who have ever lived, they they all had the exact same quote-unquote issues that we bitch about our coaches for, but it's just that nobody remembers it because they were given enough uh, of a leash to go do other things that were also great, you know? I mean, even if you look at Don James's timeline, there's plenty of years of eight and nine wins um, where he didn't win the Pac-10 or Pac-8, Pac-10. 
It, yeah. When did it become? Or eight, yeah, or ten. It was after this. Or yeah. it was ten at this point. I think it was 87, 88. I think it was 77 or 78. Yeah, seven, seven, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, and so we, we, I mean, we built him a statue, um, and then, but then people were are applying only the selective memory of uh, his positives to the same standard for, for example, Chris Peterson. And I'm not saying that, you know, you shouldn't hold coaches, et cetera, to a high standard, but uh, humans are humans, and even Nick Saban lost two games this year. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, there's, I, I, I... I don't remember which book this is in, but there's a really good anecdote along these lines in one of Bill James's books. It might have been his Hall of Fame book, um, where he talks about why people tend to uh, mythologize or lionize older players. And I th- he had a couple contributing factors, a couple of them I remembered that I think are interesting. One was that uh, sports writers or analysts or even fans tend to have really fond memories of kind of the first people they fell in love with in the sport. So, you know, if you grew up, yeah, if you grew up, right. Or if you grew up during the Don James era, you fell in love with Don James. So you're viewing every future coach through a Don James colored glasses. And you're like, well, this guy isn't doing the thing that Don James did. He's like, well, Don James would have done it this way. So it's anything that's different is inherently worse because your ideal was already established as the thing that you fell in love with initially, which is fine. That's human nature. The other element of it was um, when you're young, and this is kind of similar, but a little bit different, uh, and you're seeing, this probably applies more to a player, but take, uh, you know, if you were watching uh, Napoleon Kaufman when you were young and you saw him running all over defenses and, and putting up crazy stats, and then in the future you're seeing other guys do it, and you think that they're not as great as Napoleon Kaufman because when you saw Napoleon Kaufman and that was the first guy you saw doing that, it was amazing. And you're like, I've never seen, this is so much better than anybody else I've ever seen do this thing. And then you go on, you see other guys do it, and you're like, well, he might be a little better at this, a little better at that, but you don't have that same emotional reaction to it being so much better than anything you've ever seen, which, so it's hard to contextualize. And that, I think, is also closely related to what we were talking about earlier in terms of, like, comparing things in our relative versus an absolute sense. But, yeah, yeah kind, of, kind of a digression. Um, one yeah. other thing I, I thought was, oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, oh, I just want to say, that I think the first thing with that is totally is per, can be perfectly applied to the anyone who goes oh Saturday Night Live isn't good these days because I'm like that's the same rule of no Saturday Night Live your the best Saturday Night Live has ever been was just when you were in tenth grade and that's yeah, like, yeah. And anyways true. go on it, it actually was that was the best yeah. it ever was when I was in tenth grade yeah I can prove it um, I. <laughs> My favorite thing about this game, and this is, like, I'm a crusader in this sense, but I don't have a lot of, like, super strong non-negotiable sports opinions, but one of them is that instant replay is bad in all uh, iterations. <laughs> and watching this game without instant replay was just such a joy. Like, there was a play, a pass interference call, it was probably wrong. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, McKay, uh, Orlando McKay going deep and think that they may have, you know, the guy might have got there Split second early, there was some debate about it. And the, the uh, Bob Greasy and Keith Jackson basically, they kind of went back and forth about it and then went on to say basically, like, I agree to disagree. We'll move on. It'll even out. Like, well, that's so much better than, the, like, 
the fact that we go through like 15 minutes of reviews, we never get to have an organic, genuine reaction to a play in the game because we're always waiting to see if it holds up on review, which is like undermines the whole purpose of watching sports. Uh, and then was it? we still we still don't even end up at like the right answer. We end up at like some perverted uh, understanding of the rule, and nobody really understands the standard of review anyway which has been uh, like very ominously clear by watching the XFL games where they pipe in the rest conversations. They don't even know what they're reviewing most of the time. The refs are not like arbiters of truth. They're not that smart. These are guys who have like part-time jobs as referees. It's like, just stop pretending like it's objective. Admit that there are going to be some mistakes and just say like, we're going to get it as close as we can. And we're going to try to preserve the fan experience while we're doing it. That, that was a huge improvement. Uh, you know, some of the other things like not having a game clock on the screen was pretty jarring. Not having a first down marker made it kind of hard to tell what was going on sometimes. But, uh, you know, I, I gladly trade all those things for uh, getting the instant replay out of the game. Yeah, I have it. I'm not super. Um, oh, wait, I have to sneeze. No, no, I don't. Yes, I do. Wait. No, I'm fine. Um, I'm not super. Wait, no, I have to sneeze. No, damn it. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> This is the worst. Uh, no, I'm not super opinionated on the replay thing, even though obviously when they take like 15 minutes to decide what if he was touching it with his pinky finger as he went out of bounds, so was it a catch like that is garbage. Um, but, oh, shoot, I had a thought here and I forgot it. But, yeah, overall, I definitely agree. It's, it was, even though um, – like, I like that there is some version or some amount of instant replay for when things are egregiously, egregiously wrong. It was nice just having that really smooth, just like it's a football game and we'll play it and then the clock will go to zero. Yeah, absolutely. So much better. Um, a couple other little things. I thought it was funny when they cut away to a baseball score. Also weird that they cut away to so many baseball scores. I know it's like towards the end of the season, but uh, that wouldn't happen now. We would not be hearing about that. We might hear, like, an advertisement for the six Yankee Red Sox games that are going to be on ESPN in the next few days. <laughs> but they uh, said Atlanta's got some good young pitching, don't they? And this was the year they went to the World Series. They had a, a very young Tom Glavin. I think it was his rookie year. John Smoltz, who ended up pitching in Game 7 of the World Series, uh, toe-to-toe with Jack Morris, probably the greatest World Series game of all time. Steve Avery is in the rotation. And this was before they even had Greg Maddox. So it's pretty, he was still with the Cubs. He won Cy Young in 91 with the Cubs before he went to the Braves. Um, but that was, I thought just a funny uh, moment that they, they just touched on this other thing happening in sports that went on to have a you know, decade-long after effect. Also, yeah. I, I was doing some a little bit of clicking around, looking at things related to this. I found that uh, Bean O'Brien went to Dorsey High School in L.A., which is the same high school as Jadon Mickens and Marvin Hall, recent Huskies. Also, this is such a weird list of people. Charles Kukowski, baseball manager Sparky Anderson, Judge Joe Brown, uh, Robert Kardashian, uh, Keyshawn Johnson, Hugh Jackson, the NFL coach, Mike Love from the Beach Boys, Billy Preston, the studio musician who was with the Beatles a lot, and uh, a drug trafficker named Freeway Rick Ross, who is the namesake of the the current rapper Rick Ross. That's a pretty bizarre list of alumnus, alumni. I just... I just learned a fact. About Freeway Rick Ross? I did not know he was named after that man. Yeah, I, I learned that today as well. It was an interesting thing. 
Uh, all right. So with that, let's get to our wrapping up edge or wrap up edge. Uh, let's do a little uh, recommendation uh, area segment. Uh, we have a lot of time these days to sit at home and watch TV and not much else. I'm guessing you don't have any uh, shows to plug, unfortunately, because it's hard no, to do they, live uh, comedy shows they, in isolation. They've been canceled as hell. I am feeling this is a good time, though, to have been rejected by um, five uh, comedy festivals in, like, five weeks. So that that's so nice you silver. Yeah. 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 I feel bad for yeah, the people who would have gone. Um no, but uh I would okay, this actually so I don't know if it was Keith Jackson or what's his face, but one of the commentators really sounded to me like Matt Gorley, who um if anyone I don't know if anyone listening to this knows who that is, but he's a improviser and sketch comic uh, who kind of is associated with like Paul F. Tompkins and Steve Agee um, and kind of that whole crew down in L.A. who kind of um, was like mid late 90s all coming out together. Um, he also is the producer of Conan O'Brien's podcast and he produces and or is in like 5,000 billion podcasts. But um, this one that Paul F. Tompkins did uh, with, I think, UCB from, like, 2010 to 2015 uh, called the Dead Authors Podcast reminded me. Uh, this him, what's-his-face, one of the commentators sounding like Matt Gorley reminded me of this podcast because Matt Gorley was a really common uh, guest on it, and pretty much it's a live recording where Paul F. Tompkins plays H.G. Wells, who's going around, the premise is he's going around in his time machine to interview authors from the past. Um, <laughs> and it's really funny. Um, and Matt, Matt, there's one episode in particular that I, I listen to it probably once every like nine months or so. And it's, um, the Brothers Grimm, uh, of, and Matt Gorley, I think, plays Jacob, Bill, uh, Grimm. And I think Steve Agee's the other guy, plays Wilhelm. And it's just, it starts out funny and weird, and then it slowly gets just, like, weirder and weirder to the point where their childhood, uh, like, they, uh, his brother had a disease called reverse blinking, and, like, his dad had a job where he had to give all of his money away, and that was his job, and it just gets slowly weirder and weirder, um, but he's so freaking funny and so silly and weird and i'm thinking i'm gonna go listen to this listen to that after we're done with this actually because it's delightful that is yeah. my plug that's a good one that's that's like pulling from deep enough that no one was going to find it on their own if they had no one was going to find that on there they haven't made a new episode in like four or five years yeah that's what, what's the one that is it uh you talking you two to me that uh it's a uh, Scott Ackerman and Adam Scott and my brother listens to every episode of that, which come out like, I don't know, once every like two and a half years or something. And they just never actually do episodes of it. Um, anyway, separate topic. Yeah. Uh, I have, have it, I try to recommend books from time to time. I haven't loved like been pulled over by any of the books I've read lately, but I did read a couple books that I, I, there was at least an interesting bit of trivia about them. I was reading a, 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 a just a crime noir detective novel by an author named Ross McDonald, 
And I looked up, I was interested to see if he was related to kind of a contemporary uh, crime novelist named John D. McDonald. What I found was he's not related to him, and Ross McDonald is a gnome de plume because he his real name is uh, Millar, Kenneth Millar. And he changed his name as an author because his wife, who he met in Kitchener, Ontario, like a small town in Ontario, yeah. uh, was yeah, named Margaret Millar. Yeah, it's a can it's a Canadian thing. Uh yeah. he met his wife there and she was also a crime novelist in the same era and he did not want them to be confused with each other, so he changed his name and she continued to use her name Margaret Millar, and they both had like very successful crime novel careers, uh that are it's very strange that they the oh, husband and wife both having these uh very successful careers. Um just a, a bizarre thing that I, I thought was uh, kind of interesting, but both both interesting, good writers. I, I just read Vanish in an Instant by Margaret Millar and uh, The Drowning Pool by Ross MacDonald were both kind of interesting. Neither one was I, – I kind of want to see the Paul Newman movie adaptation of Drowning Pool. Oh. Apparently, he made a movie about it like 20 years later, so oh. it's probably worth watching. Um, and I do love Paul Newman, so that's probably cool. Uh, but other than that, I, I'm just looking forward to finishing up the season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think the last episode was on Sunday, and we haven't caught up with it yet, but that'll be good. And then, uh, you know, have a little bit of time to probably pick out some kind of new show or something. So if anybody has any great ideas, I'd love to hear it. And it uh, seems like there's plenty of time to dive into TV shows right now. I yeah. really want a, a sitcom to exist of uh, the Millar the Millar, the Millars, the Ontarian uh, crime author duo marriage. I don't know why. Yeah. I feel like that's something that needs to be made, and I want to watch it. Yeah. Well, if you <laughs> you, you could probably just start work on the script. You know, it's probably doable. I probably uh, <laughs> did they die? Are their life rights like are they public uh, yet? I don't know. They're both dead. Why don't you know? How long do they have to be okay. dead? Yeah, because I have both of their media pages open now. They're not. They haven't been dead that long. <laughs> I don't know what their goals are. Uh, yeah, and th- there's another detail of this. They both, in their like 30s, moved to Santa Barbara, California, and both set all of their, not all, most of their stories in a fictionalized version of Santa Barbara, and each of them had a different name for it. Uh, Ross McDonald <laughs> called it. Uh, uh, I don't remember the name that he used, but uh, his wife, Santa Teresa, his wife called it uh, Santa Felicia. They're both fictionalized versions of Santa Barbara. I like the thought that they, like, had never been there, and they're from Kitchener, Ontario, which is in between, it's like western Ontario in between Toronto and London, and they're used to this just absolute horseshit winter, and then they go to Santa Barbara and are like, what, you can live like this? Yeah, right. I don't know. For some reason, I find, I'm finding all of these situations very entertaining in the back of my head. And when I get bored enough, uh, I will write a script about it. It'll be in like 10. No, you know, we're, I was going to say it'll be in 10 years, but we're so bored out of our goddamn minds right now. I'll probably do it <laughs> no tomorrow. Place than t- here, no better time than now. Yeah. In between hands. Usually that's not true, but that's very true now. Yeah, it, it really is. 
All right. So I think that wraps it up. I mean, we may have something new to talk about in a couple weeks, or we may just go back to the well and watch another game from like 1991 and review it, or maybe another era. I don't know. I'm open to ideas. If anybody has a specific game from an era where there is game tape available of it, uh, we'd probably be open to going back and reading it. So let us know. Uh, follow at, at Gabby, not Gabby on Twitter and me. I'm at aberg seven. And either of us will be happy to take your suggestions on things that we could review in terms of old Husky games on this podcast. So until next time, thanks for listening. Uh, I'd say go dogs, but right now it doesn't really matter. So uh, we'll hold off on that and try to stay over locked for when sports are actually happening. Go future concept of dogs. Woo. Okay. Bye.